I think one of my very favorite is Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. And sometimes that is sung um, throughout the year too, but that really has um, that sense of awe that is, um, you know, unlike any other uh, kind of human emotion, this um, silence that's really a fear and a trembling that's married to wonder. Um, And it it sort of has everything in it, rank on rank, the host of heaven. It's got light, light descending. Um, And it's sort of this, it's evoking, of course, both comings. You have King of Kings, born of Mary, and then this Alleluia at the end. Good Heavens is a podcast examining and appreciating the wonders of the cosmos from a biblical perspective, designed for education and wholesome entertainment for the whole family. From the most distant galaxies to the strangest stars in the universe, Wayne and Dan cover a wide variety of cosmological and astronomical topics as they point to the glory of God in Christ. Here is your host, Daniel Ray. You hear the arguments and comments all the time from non-believers and skeptics. Morality is subjective, or good and evil are subjective. Perhaps you've also heard people say beauty is subjective, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We also tend to think of ourselves as comprised of a multitude of characteristics or properties. John, we say, is handsome, strong, ethical, and good. Patricia is beautiful, moral, wise, and kind, etc. And we automatically assume that each of these qualities are distinct. Strength is not the same as wisdom, and goodness isn't necessarily the same as beauty or strength. So consider all the different kinds of moral systems that exist and have existed, and then think about how many different opinions exist as to what constitutes true beauty. How can there be a God behind what appears to us to be such fragmentation about our very existence? If we combine the relativistic thoughts about morality, goodness, and beauty with our unquestioned tendency to think of our human qualities as separate and distinct, it becomes a significant challenge to think properly of God. Classically understood, God is simple. That is, he is not made up of parts or distinct qualities that exist independently of his being. He is, as he tells Moses, the I am, the very ground of being itself, from which all life and being come to exist. But the ever-present danger for us as believers is to think of God in anthropomorphic terms. That is, we tend to see God as though he were just like us in terms of having parts and distinct and separate qualities. Theologian James E. Dolzal, however, reminds us that, quote, God does not depend on qualities really distinct from his divine essence in order to exist as he does. He does not require what is not God, i.e. not divinity, in order to be anything that he is. It follows from God's non-compositeness that in him all his attributes are really identical with each other. For many, this implication is the hardest to accept. 
It would seem that if we know anything about God, then we know that his power is not his wisdom, and his wisdom is not his goodness, and his goodness is not his eternity, and so on. But if he is simple, and if his being is not dependent on component parts that are ontologically more basic than the fullness of his being, then all these things we say about him would have to be identical in him. The Puritan John Owen thus concludes, the attributes of God, which alone seem to be distinct things in the essence of God, are all of them essentially the same with one another, and every one the same with the essence of God itself. End quote. Morality, beauty, goodness, and truth are then not ultimately subjective. They all derive their ontological grounding in God himself. They are all one and the same. The reason they appear subjective to us can be the result of at least two factors. One, we are subjects of our Creator. We do not possess the omni-qualities of God, but as image-bearers reflect God's invisible essence, not in whole, as God is, but in part. It takes a planet full of divine image-bearers, past, present, and future, to even begin to represent the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. We are each a reflection, a facet of the composite wholeness of God. Two, we are fallen subjects who, because of sin, suppress the truth of God's nature in unrighteousness. We are hideously focused on fragmentation and reductionism, fatally attracted to dividing, separating, and classifying, with little or no thought given to the coherence and unity of God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is part two of our discussion with musicologist Dr. Christina George. If you've not yet heard part one, we encourage you to pause this and give part one a listen. It is Christie's aim to counter our cultural tendencies toward fragmentation by uniting music, philosophy, and theology together in a coherent, beauteous, and harmonious truth that points the way to the glory of God in Christ. As we begin part two, Christie talks about a section from J.R.R. Tolkien's imaginative creation narrative, The I Nalindale, the first part in the Silmarillion. Christie George. It also makes me think of this opening in the Silmarillion where Iluvatar has given, God has given each of the Ainur um, a particular melody to sing. And they are not yet singing together, but Tolkien specifies each of these melodies are highlighting one aspect of Iluvatar's thoughts, of God's thoughts. And mm. when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, we are supposed to notice different things that don't even necessarily relate to each other. But the problem is so many so quickly use this as an argument to say, see, there is no objective beauty. But what if instead it is what you're saying, which is all of these things are, are true, but they are reflecting a different aspect of God's character that we do not know all of yet because we are so limited and we are... You know, we have this gracious gift of, of getting to know him.
it's certainly not to say that everything is beautiful, but everything that God has given is beautiful. And I think that's the that's the key part, is that just because we see an aspect or or even in different different pieces of music actually writers on music like cpe bach they talk about musical taste and that's my um kind of niche area the thing i get most excited about because of this um objective sense in which which beauty is is truth and cpe bach says musics of of all the world all over the world each have something about them that are true they might not be all good but there is something that is true in each of them and I think that's such a good way to acknowledge man's limitation and fallenness while also saying um, because of the way that music itself has been created and given by God, there is something true embedded in, in so much of what mm. we subcreate, really. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, and this may be far off the beaten path from Carl Philip Emanuel, but uh, uh, I love <laughs> Tchaikovsky. Uh, he certainly was not mm-hmm. in the same sort. I mean, he was Russian and struggled with depression and, as, as I understand it, alcoholism to some degree. I was in grade school. I was seven years old. It was in the San Francisco Bay Area. Our school, public school, uh, I grew up in Palo Alto, California, um, and uh, my elementary school is no longer there because Silicon Valley has become what it is. They tore down my elementary school and built houses for uh, technocrats. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I was, uh, we went, I think it was third grade. It was third grade. I was seven, eight, I remember. But uh, we went on a field trip to see the Nutcracker at the San Francisco Ballet. And, uh, you know, I, I feel for my poor teacher taking eight-year-olds, seven-year-olds on a field trip to a ballet. <laughs> but it worked out pretty I was fascinated I'd never been to a ballet mm. I didn't know anything about ballet mm. um, my teacher was rather culturally refined Mr. McCabot he read aloud to us and everything but I was struck by not only the stage scenery but the music and I still to this day yeah. uh, the 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 story is so fascinating to me because of how it struck me when I was a child but his implementation of the use of the celestia which is the instrument uh, in the dance of the sugar plum fairies. To me, that's just pure, pure magic and beauty. Yes. I mean, that just, I can't think of anything else really in, in all the kind of classical music that I love that really instills in me this sense of wonder and uh, this fascinating, quiotic, strange, wonderful, magnanimous uh, Uncle Drosselmeyer. Who is this guy that gives Claire the nutcracker? <laughs> you know, what is that? <laughs> You know, and this yeah. nutcracker comes yeah. to life and fights the two-headed mouse. But the the dance of the sugar plum fairies with that music, it's 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 so good to me. It's like this – I know it's just a shadow and a copy, but it's saying something true about the nature of reality, you know, that that veiled in this, yeah. in this ballet are truths about the reality of the gift-giving God that we worship and serve. Who is this individual who comes bearing gifts to men? Uh, who is this who fights the, the seven-headed, ten-headed mouse king? Who is this that does these things for us? Who is this that becomes our our prince and our lord and our savior? And what are these gifts? And this is the, the world is magical, and it's beautiful. And I think I think for me, just as an example, and I know there's other instruments and things, but that that the phrase the the, the celestia in that in that in that uh, piece is just it, it's one of those one of those what Lewis would call a 
uh, a moment of joy, you know, that stab of joy, that, 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 that peering yeah. behind the veil, that stab of joy, you're like, wow, this, it's not that that actually satisfies the thing that you want. It, it, it's drawing you further toward the thing that is. It's just what I think music does in this world. It, it's not the music itself. It's that the music is a, a pointer like the stars leading us in the direction of, of God himself. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the use of the celesta there, the, the bell, the way that the bell sounds, it, it seems like something otherworldly. In in uh, George MacDonald uses music so much too in his his fairy stories. I'm I'm thinking of when um, I never know if I'm saying his name right, but Anodos. That's what happens when you always read the thing, you know. <laughs> um, but anyways, he's walking through the walking through the the palace in, in the middle of the, of um, Fantasties, and he there's a line which says he couldn't hear any music and he wasn't sure why he couldn't hear any music because he thought there was always supposed to be music in fairyland and the next the next line says he supposed something like he supposed that his his sensibilities were too gross he he was not yet fit to hear it and i thought whoa that says i mean there's a lot of things there but the the this kind of tied nature of there should always be music in fairyland because music is always something which helps us um as you're saying it draws us to the thing which lies beyond it it helps us believe that something is true uh because of the way in which it moves us but the fact that he was lamenting that he was not ready to hear it was um uh really special because most people today would hate to admit that they're not ready to hear something the response is always so yes of course (laughs) of course i know Mm. what you're talking about Mm. of course i can hear that and um that was a strange moment of of kind of personal reflection and thinking about a the way a pilgrimage is leading you closer to the thing that you're you're moving toward uh but this when you when you mentioned the celesta in this context that's definitely what i think of Absolutely. The, the, the idea that uh, whether it's music or literature or song or stars, um, I think it's, it's kind of akin to what uh, to Lewis's argument f- from longing, this idea that if, if, if my longing in this world is not fulfilled, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a pointer, ontologically speaking, to, it's a pointer to somewhere else. It's like the North Star. Um, I know when that's directly overhead, I'm, you know, I'm hanging out with polar bears. Um, and (laughs) did you know, this is interesting. I found this out. I mean, this is a, your dad probably has told you this when you're in the Arctic when you're in the Arctic, Arctic means bear like there's the star Arcturus in the constellation of boots. Buotes, I think is how you say it. And if you follow the handle the, to the if you follow the handle of the dipper, it points to Buotes and it points to Arcturus, and so Arcturus mm-hmm. means bear watcher. Yeah. Arctic is bear like, so when you're in the Arctic, you're wow. around polar bears. When you're in the Antarctic, there are no polar bears. There are penguins. <laughs> totally true. There's no bears I'm in yes. Antarctica. <laughs> there's but there's bears wow. in the Arctic. 
And so you have this constellation called the Great Bear. It's almost like, hello, yeah. you know, so God puts this uh, constellation. Now, I don't know. I mean, we don't know. But, but you look in the book of Job, this is one of the few constellations yeah. that's actually named the Great Bear. Can yeah. you guide the Great Bear, Job? Yes. Of course, rhetorically, no, you can't. But, but the Great Bear is, is in the north. And what does God fill the landmass of the northernmost region of our planet with? Bears. <laughs> you know, and so then he puts stars above them. Like here's bear territory, right? And then then God's saying, "Can you can you guide the bears?" No, you can't. You know, and um, so it, it's it's it, the whole of creation, really. I think does speak to uh, as pointers. Everything is a pointer. Everything is yeah. is pointing us. Yeah. And, and as you say about uh, fantasies, there that uh, that uh, are we. In, in our journey, are we able to not only hear the music, are we able to see the signs? You know, I mean, the sign, the mm-hmm. word sign is what yeah. uh, Jesus, uh, John uses in, in John's gospel. Uh, the wine was the first sign, the samion. And, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't see with the proper eyes. They were always asking for more. How, what sign do you do to show us who you are? And Jesus, he's like, you know, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, meaning that I have given you plenty to go on. And here you are demanding more, which mm-hmm. is basically saying, well, I don't see any. This is like talking to skeptics. I don't see any evidence for God's existence, you know, and it's 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 not only a deafness. It's a spiritual blindness that does not see the markers that are leading us toward Eternity, And one thing, Christy, that I see constantly when I talk to atheists and skeptics, they don't like to talk about this idea of music and beauty and that, and that inner working, that, that inner ontological guidepost, the northerly stars, all the signs, all the symbols, all the wonders that come through the arts, that come through mm-hmm. literature, that mm-hmm. come through poetry, that come through music. Because those are internal guidance systems that I think God uses to direct yeah. us toward, toward him as we sojourn here on on earth definitely and they're compelling (laughs) which is why it's uncomfortable (laughs) i mean that's true that 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 you make an excellent point there they are um compelling um but they are uncomfortable it it it, that's an excellent way to look at it i would say yeah i mean you go to um i've been to the fort worth symphony a few times um and you just listen to the music and i don't Mm -hmm. i don't get very emotional in front of people i don't like that i just i just it's just not me, but I can, but it is very emotionally music, moving to hear music. And so to me, that is really just meaningful, like a cello or a violin strain or, mm-hmm. or a plain song or plain chant or, or anything like that. It's just the, the music is, it's, it's soul stirring. Um, I don't sing very well. <laughs> I wish I could sing better. I kind of mumble in church, but, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the emotive sense of, of, rejoicing in song is still very emotive and very I, I love the old hymns and things and uh christmas hymns are my favorite i could sing them all year long yes you know yes uh i really could do you have since we're in the season of advent could, do you have a favorite christmas song lyrically musically that we could uh talk about a little bit Ooh, this is it's a hard one there's are a few of my of my favorites i have Recently realized, recently in the last uh, year or two, especially, um, but I, 
am less familiar with with um, hymns that are kind of traditionally designated, especially in either an Anglican or a Catholic sort of church calendar, church setting. You know, they reserve Christmas Christmas hymns for Christmas and then the season of celebration coming after Christmas. And um, so I know far more uh, Christmas hymns and Christmas uh, folk songs and carols than I do technically advent hymns so i've been thinking a lot about how do i how can i become more familiar with these advent hymns although our church does sing a good deal of them but i love the longing that is not um not fulfilled although it's it's fulfilling in the sense that we are supposed to long so that that fits with who we are supposed to be and what we are remembering during this Mm. season but i love o come o come emmanuel and um Yes, my favorite, my actual favorite. Mm, Well, good, good. Um, And I I also, I think one of my very favorite is Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. And sometimes Mm. that is sung um, throughout the year too, but that really has um, that sense of awe that is, um, you know, unlike any other uh, kind of human emotion this um, silence that's really a fear and a trembling that's married to wonder. And it, it sort of has everything in it, rank on rank, the host of heaven. It's got light, light descending. Um, and it's sort of this, mm. it's evoking, of course, both comings. You have King of Kings, born of Mary, and then this Alleluia at the end uh, in in line with the, the six-winged seraph. So it really, um, it kind of brings everything together. And I love, I love sad sounding minor things. And this is kind of <laughs> beautiful and, and mysterious and yes. evocative. So that's probably yes. my top favorite. But uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is a quick second. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the, 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 the minor key, and I'm sure you would agree, I'm, I'm on the same bend the minor key is very evocative mm-hmm. uh it's not it's not uh it, it it doesn't offend it stirs and causes a concern a deep sort of rich almost sorrowfulness mm-hmm. um in one sense it makes me think of i i always think this and this maybe you find this similarly true but uh mark 14 uh after uh, the partaking of the supper in Mark, they had sung a hymn mm. together. They went out to the Mount of Olives. What did that sound like? I bet it was. <laughs> I mean, this is, I'm singing a hymn with the creator of the universe. What yeah. was the key? Was it a beautiful minor, you know? what? I mean, it gets a passing reference, but... It is, it's amazing. To, it gives me chills, just, just that little line. And it brings me to something I wanted to, to what you've just said so wonderfully, I think, in um, what Jesus starts speaking in 
in uh, his first public sermon in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, mm-hmm. in verse 2 it says, And opening his mouth, he began to teach them. Mm-hmm. And what does he say? The first thing he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Blessed are the gentle, or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is Matthew doing here? He's telling his Jewish audience, the kingdom of the heavens, the creator and Lord of the Shemaim of the Old Testament, Genesis 1-1, that guy, he's here. And Jesus is here on the Sermon on the Mount saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. This goes back to the Abrahamic promise yeah. that the generations of Abram will have as their inheritance something like the stars and something like the earth. I mean, you mentioned it earlier, the new heavens and the new earth. And then in verse 13 of this same chapter, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And I think of the cosmos in that way, you know? We're yeah. in this little house called yeah. Earth, <laughs> and God has created a fantastic lampstand above us. And he says in verse 16, Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in the heavens. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you go back to the Exodus. God lit up his children and put them on a lampstand and the whole world is still talking about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and the song of Moses in chapter 15, um, that, that we are lights. And, you know, you said earlier, the, the light and sound do, they, they do travel. They do promulgate in waves, right? That, uh, you know, light is a particle wave duality and, and sound waves. And, and there's this phenomenal mystery about how sound and light reach us. It, it's it. I mean, we we take it for granted, but really, when you dig down into the physics, or whether you contemplate mm-hmm. how information, how you know, whether I'm looking at, at at information on a screen or I'm listening to a song, that there's something being conveyed in the waves of the sound and in the waves of light that is triggering my eleven cis retina in my eyes, or triggering yeah. the, the hammers <laughs> and tongs in my ears, and sending a message to my brain. You know, uh, a little messenger from afar that says, God is near. It's fantastic. It um, This actually did bring up for me a memory when you are talking about how, how sound and light does travel. And we both, you know, you're describing we tried to know it. We try to understand. Um, but also we can't <laughs> fully. And when I when I was a kid... Um, so after, after all these star parties, we went to a number in a row, I think for a few summers and, um, dad and I stayed up all night and did the, the Messier marathon and we didn't find quite all of the Messier objects. I think we found 103 of them and we were like, no, cause <laughs> we good. missed like, you know, whether you're one of those people that believes there's 109 or 110, I think there are yeah, two camps right, in the right. world, but you know, mm-hmm. that's all right. Um, we were close, but the timing of dawn and dusk is where we lost the couple on the, on the edges. Mm-hmm. But all that to say we were we were in the throes of 
of the heavens, you could you could say. Mm. And I read somewhere, I don't remember where it was or where the thought came to me, but someone someone told me or, or shared with me at some point it, as an argument for uh, the age of the earth. And, and I had always grown up being taught in about a, a young earth that was created fully by God. And um, someone was arguing against that and they said but what do you do with the the age of the stars which we could know because of you know their distance we measure this in light years how long it takes light to pass from that star to our eye and i i stopped for a moment and you know my 13 year old self was like huh i don't Mm. know and i think i shared this with my with my father and i said i'm not questioning all of the things that i'm being taught to learn well but this is a confusing thing. We're marveling at these physical things. What do I do when I find out that Andromeda is this far away? How do I know that that is um, in harmony with all these other things I've been learning? And he said, well, Christy, of course, he always asked a question, so he never told me the answer. He said, what kind, of, what kind of people did God create at the beginning of the earth? He said, were they babies? And I was like, oh, light bulb. No, he made mature right. beings. Yeah. And um, and he and he created this earth with also what it needed for regeneration. And um, it gave so much. In that moment, I felt so much uh, comfort, I think. Um, like often happens when you find out that yet again, your faith makes sense yeah. <laughs> in the ways that we can. But um, but it was just this, this moment of, oh, wow. Like I'm wondering at this thing worthy of wonder the distance of these stars the fact that somehow i can see these galaxies that's incredible Mm. that human you know technical creations like telescopes enable me to do so and that god would even know that i would want to do that Mm. and also there is an there is a you know i i'm not pretending to be an expert in this area but there is an explanation as to why that star might actually be that far away and the rest of these things are coherent and um, it was such a <laughs> a moment for me yes. of realizing that I could trust God as right. I continued to learn new things. Right, you know? right. My uh, favorite analogy, because I sit, I try to sit as neutrally as possible on the light question, because I get asked as a Christian <laughs> apologist with a with a with yeah. a with a uh, podcast about the universe. Uh, my I get I get this question all the time. Right. How old is it, Ray? You know, Andromeda is two and a half million light years away, don't you? Um, blah 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 blah. And I yeah. said, well, first, um, you know, Albert Einstein didn't really ever look through a telescope. He did his calculations according to his wife on the back of old envelopes. He figured out, tried to figure out the fabric of space time, and made <laughs> made a couple of assumptions um, that the universe is isotropic and homogeneity. Uh, yeah homogeneous um, in all directions. But uh, anyway, I'm digressing here. But my favorite biblical analogy to tell people is um, is is uh, the, the sign in, in Cana. I mean, if you think of the creation event as miraculous, which it is, it was a one-time mm-hmm. thing that God created the stars, let there be, you know, it, it, that, that he created them at, at, in, in a day. When Jesus created water, mm-hmm. uh, created wine, at Cana, and yeah. he took, you know, it was instantaneous. He took some, he had some taken to the master of the feast who tasted the yes. good wine. Now, if you would have asked the, the master of the feast a technical question about wine, sir, how long do you think this was fermenting before it mm. was created? And yeah. he would obviously give you an answer in accordance with his own understanding, which would have been, you know, a decade or more. This is really mm. good wine. It has been sitting a while. And he would have been wrong. 
you know, right. because uh, and, and this this is something that I love about uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Uh, I actually studied under Michael Ward at Houston Baptist University. I don't know if you know Michael or not. Um, he is a uh, preeminent C.S. Lewis scholar who wrote the book Planet Narnia. And if you haven't read it, you need to. It, it's, uh, it was a life changer for me. It's a great book. But uh, <clears throat> Dr. Ward had talked to me about, we, we discussed um, in some of the essays and classes we took, that Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is actually C.S. Lewis's argument for miracles in fairy tale form. And so, like you said earlier about the witch who realized at some point that Aslan's magic was far greater and deeper than hers, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe makes the point that uh, makes this point even more explicit that that the witch believed in a deep uh, in a deep magic before time, but Aslan says there was a deeper magic mm-hmm. before time. And so, in other words, this idea that that a miracle is a violation of a law, which is David Hume isn't really the case, that, that a miracle right. would be in accordance with laws that are virtually unknown to man. And they appear infrequently as, we've been talking about, reminders mm-hmm. of a kingdom beyond this world. Yeah. And so a, a miracle isn't a, a violation of, of natural law. It's a violation of our understanding. It, it reminds us that our understanding is fallible. Right. <laughs> it reminds us that we are... Uh, we don't know everything. And it reminds us, again, that there is a kingdom that is breaking into ours uh, that is not of this world, as Jesus says to Pilate. Uh, my kingdom is not of this world. And it, Pilate is extremely troubled by Jesus's confession of another kingdom. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pilate says to the Jews, well, here's your king. And they're like, he's not our king. And that whole crucifixion scene is 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 remarkable. It's terrifying. It's remarkable. Pilate's scared. Pilate's wife's afraid, but Pilate is more afraid of the crowd than he ultimately really is about Jesus. But all of these signs, the miracles, are are, are signposts to to yeah. to another kingdom. So they don't violate the rules of this world. They point to deeper laws that exist beyond uh, space time and all of that kind of stuff. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's a beautiful analogy too for what you mentioned earlier about. Um, these different facets of the beautiful because we get excited about what we can see and what we can identify as, as beauty. And we, um, we are moved by it, but we make the mistake of thinking once we have seen some of it, that we know all of it and, or even that all of it is, is determined by what we enjoy first and we become the arbiter of what is beautiful. Right. Um, but if, what if you're saying about, you know, the way in which, uh, a miracle works in relation to our understanding of of the laws of the universe then it it seems to me that it would be completely consistent to say the laws of beauty are also what they are and we are limited but we are growing <laughs> you know you you can mm. cultivate a sensibility because god has allowed this in a gracious way and will you know probably never reach the sum of understanding what is beautiful until we meet him and see his face mm. but in the meantime, we are growing in our understanding of what is actually beautiful. And um, it, in the same way that if we knew more about the laws that existed before <laughs> the winemaking that we know, maybe there's a mm-hmm. way we could understand this. But yeah, it seems like a really a helpful analogy for several of these ideas at once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As uh, Matthew says in Matthew chapter 4, um, quoting a prophecy from the Old Testament, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, 
and to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And, uh, of course, Matthew opens his gospel with the star that bring the wise men to Jesus and to, to Herod and to say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. And this announcement and the arrival of the wise men, um, trouble, Herod, and all of Jerusalem. And the only people, it's interesting, you, we, we meet the gospel, the gospels begin, the story of Jesus begins. Who are the first worshipers of God in, in the New Testament? Magi from the East, not the Jews, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. And, and so right. God goes to the Gentiles. Matthew is all about the, the Jewish God, Yahweh, is now making the gospel open to the nations. And this is how the Matthew's gospel ends. The, you know, the go into all the world. Uh, it's open now to everybody. You know, it's not just a, a, a small sect of Jews who went through the, the Red Sea on dry land. It is now the gospel is open to everyone. And um, I think, and I don't know for sure, but um, there's, do you remember the story of Balaam and Balak? that uh, Balak hires Balaam to Mm -hmm. curse Israel in Numbers 24. And all Balaam can do is actually bless Israel, and Balak is very upset by this. (laughs) And one of the the blessings that Balaam pronounces is that uh, he says, I see a star rising out of Jacob. It's Numbers 24, 17. Mm -hmm. And so Matthew is, is the, the star in Matthew is a fulfillment of what Balaam utters, that a star rises out of Jacob and leads the Magi. Uh, to the foot of Jesus, and they present to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, which leads me to this, and I, I maybe you know this, maybe you don't, and we can kind of wrap up here and final thoughts or whatever. But um, coming up on the 20, 21st of, of this month, which is Monday, there will be a planetary conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. I didn't know if you know this. First time in centuries, and it will be the... F- yeah, the only time for the next several centuries before this will happen again. So uh, it's uh, the the star the planet set about eight o'clock, but right after sunset you can see Saturn and Jupiter. Last night it was stunningly beautiful. There was an orange crescent moon on the horizon, and just above the moon was Saturn and Jupiter uh, together, about a thumb's length wow. apart. But on Monday they're going to be so tightly together you can see them both in the telescope at the same time, and you can see the naked eye. It's going to look like one star. And so, uh, yeah, that's going to be Monday night. Um, but that, that has traditionally been one explanation for what the wise men, the Magi originally saw was a conjunction of maybe Jupiter and Venus. I mean, nobody really knows, but, Mm -hmm. but this idea, um, in the medieval mind, and this is what's fascinating to me. And and some people would say it's astrology, but I think again, speaking of what we're saying in the bigger context of of who Jesus is, Mm -hmm. the heavens are reminding us of God's nature and of his glory and so for the medievals the saturn had this melancholy sorrowful essence about it i mean and this wasn't this was widely accepted by the church this wasn't uh, prognostication or astrological you know prognostications mm-hmm. as we understand mm-hmm. them though that existed um and jupiter was this was this jovial gift giving that's where we get the word by jove you know associated with father christmas mm-hmm. and gift giving yeah. and jollyarity and people would say that chesterton was like a a jovial kind of guy right because 
that's the nature of what Job was. Jolly, festive, magnanimous, gracious, and that kind of thing. So the planet Jupiter had those connotations. But then Saturn had this melancholy foreboding. It was in the the medieval times, the the last of the planets. We didn't know Uranus and Neptune. And so now here you have this, Mm -hmm. to me, it's a reminder, if you go back to what the medievals thought, you have this reminder. I'm not predicting the future or anything, but you have the melancholy, sorrowful, coming together with this jovial king-like, you know, and and that is the essence of who Jesus is, is a man of sorrows, a king of king and lord of lords, but also a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And I think, uh, I think song, you know, we can, we can talk about that in our theology, but I think song is a great vehicle for combining those kind of truths because they can move us to great sorrow and they can, they can lift us up to great joy. And I think, uh, I think music captures that. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think too, um, as you said, who knows if this could be one explanation for the Christmas star, although it will be great, you know, article (laughs) content for the next few weeks, but, um, (laughs) but either way, it definitely reminds me of, of the rainbow that God gave us anyway, when he, um, saved Noah and his family and then said, by, by this sign, you'll remember what I have done for you. And in some ways, I think the specific mm. use of stars throughout Scripture um, is in part because, uh, of course, God would know that we would continue to live thousands of years beyond when it takes place historically and look up at the sky and be able to be reminded and make this connection. So even if these two planets um, coming together in conjunction are not the star, the fact that it is causing us to ask, could this be the same star that you know led mm. led the Magi to the Christ? Um, I, I think it's doing its job. <laughs> we are being reminded in the way that we need. And and. It's interesting, too, Christy, because that is, I mean, this is Lewis's take. I think it is in Reflection of the Psalms, in his essay, uh, Reflection on the Psalms, I think it is, where he says, you know, speaking of the created order, what do I remind you of? Mm-hmm. You know, what when you look at stars, when you look at trees and birds and animals and creation, what do I remind you of? Um, and I tell you, this struck me. I was at Target the other night. It's kind of weird, but <laughs> I think you'll see the point. And there's this there's this one target I go to that at sunset, when the sky is that beautiful purpley orange mm-hmm. kind of thing, and it's dusk and the sun's gone down, there were about two or three hundred male and female grackles, you know. And the grackles wow. are those birds in the parking mm-hmm. lot with a squeaky voice. <laughs> you know, I can't do their tweet, yeah. but they sing and they squeak, and and they're all over the place. And they're in Walmart parking lots and they're in Costco parking lots. And uh, some say that Montezuma. Um, or some something to do with Montezuma. These birds came from Mexico long ago. I don't know. But anyway, they're normally really noisy, extremely noisy birds, if you've ever seen a flock of them in trees or whatever. Mm-hmm. They were all on top of cars, in one just in one row, facing where the sun set. Wow. They were absolutely dead silent. Wow. All of them. I mean, hundreds of birds, and not one of them was peeping. And, I'm, and then they're in the Target parking lot, and they're all facing... West, and some of them are on tops of cars. Some of them are on the bottom. Some of them are on the on the shopping cart rack. And there's hundreds of them, and not one of them is saying a peep. Yeah. And 
I stopped and people were looking at me as I was looking at the birds and I'm like, what in the world is, why are they, how come hundreds of birds aren't even saying anything? What, you know, and it was the silence Hmm. that struck me. Yeah. Because birds sing, but they make noise, especially when there's a lot of them. And so why isn't there a lot of them singing? And uh, it was just, I was, I stopped in the parking lot and I'm sure people were like, what's this guy doing? What's he looking at? But, but in music, you know, when we talk about creation, when we talk about pause and, 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 and so it's not only that, that sound and music can, can be something, but so can the the pausing and the resting and what we talked about earlier, the, 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 the expanse, the, the, that God creates this expanse, what goes in there? So why the absence of sound in birdsong there in the Target parking lot? It, it stopped me in my tracks. Yeah. What does this mean? And, I, you know, I don't finally have a, a reason for it, but I always notice birds gathering on telephone poles and things at mm-hmm. sunset. And what are they doing? Is it like bird church? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. But, but it, it, it got me to reflect, well, Lord, what are they doing? Yeah. Why the pause in the song? You know, why did they stop singing? And then I can't help but see that this is at sunset. Maybe there's something related to to God here. That, that But he says, consider the birds of the air, Yeah. you know, as a reminder of something. And so I, I put something into that expanse that probably it, it has something to do with God, obviously. Yeah. Well, in, in Psalm 148, too, I think of um, where the psalmist says, praise the Lord from the earth. And he lists all the kinds of, of creatures and creation that will praise him. And he um, says small creatures and flying birds. He just doesn't say at target, but I think it includes that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and verse three of that praise him, sun, moon, praise him, all stars of light, praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Um, And it's interesting too, because last night at the gym, I was watching the news and our local NBC uh, news affiliate, uh, Rick Mitchell, who does our weather, he's great. Uh, he's my go-to when there's a tornado. Um, <laughs> I hate tornadoes. <laughs> so that's not a song Gotta I like. Gotta have the tornado go-to. <laughs> yeah. He's he's a tornado guy. I love Rick. Rick and uh, and uh, David Finfrock, they're like, okay, even when there's a tornado, these guys are calm as cool as cucumbers, so they're fun to watch. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Rick is talking about this planetary conjunction, and he's talking about how beautiful mm-hmm. it is. And then they had a camera shot of it. And then I go outside the gym, and, and it's, it is absolutely stunningly beautiful. This is what we talked about earlier. The beauty, it's, it's saying, what do I remind you of? How can this beauty be coincidental? Or why am I longing? Why is this drawing my eye? Why, what is this causing me to reflect upon? The very beauty itself, you know, is, is reflecting on, yeah. on, on what the psalm is saying here. Praise him, sun, moon. Praise him, all stars of, of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. So there's waters above the heavens that are above the expanse. That's what we're talking about, right? The Praise the, the waters. Yeah, yeah. And so everything is in song. And I think that's what Tolkien is doing in the Silmarillion is, is capturing creation, you know, as a symphony, as a song. And it's, it's just, we could go on and on and on about this for hours, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. And I think he's capturing creation in song in that image, in the images that he gives us. And, um, and the thing that continually strikes me there is how he captures the wills of um, of the Ainur and the ones that are desirous of reflecting the song that God gave them. Um, 
versus Melkor, who would rather be known for his own song, so he mm. makes something else. And mm. Mm. Uh, in terms of what our task is as followers of Christ, and um, um, uh, Tolkien uses the word fashioning, and I and I love that because it it attributes that first creation to God in instantly, and in it's in its connotation where mm. fashioning ex- substance that is already there, that's already been made. Um, so I think yeah. I think our task as Christians is is manifold. It's our our job to fashion what we can to the best of our ability in light of of the the ways in which God has equipped us with the beauty first, and then secondly, it's also I think uh, and and increasingly more so one of our greatest tasks is to name beauty out loud and to be specific about what is beautiful because if everyone's Mm. opinion of beauty becomes um the authority then beauty is absolutely severed from the person and and word Mm. of god so by acknowledging Mm. at least our limitation i can't pretend to always know am i looking at (laughs) the most beautiful thing but i can certainly i Mm. can certainly identify ways in which something that i am detecting um Perhaps, like Tolkien describes, mirrors one thought of God in some way and is given. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think that that is one of the most important things today when our taste is um, equated with preference so often and beauty is equated with uh, style. And it's, it's a difficult thing to sort of speak in a way that is other than that because it's not very popular <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think it's one of the most important things we can do and that's what I love about your your podcasts both of them um, but in speaking about the the wonder of the stars and the galaxies that are above us we automatically are acknowledging something that we did not make and that's really mm. important I think in practicing mm. Uh, the act of noticing what is beautiful because sometimes that's where it has to start mm, mm. yeah it's the the otherness the the holy otherness of 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 things uh where you see that in ch- children encountering animals for the first time mm-hmm, their mm-hmm. their wonder at the otherness of what they're looking at um just being struck by a living thing or a created thing that is wholly different and other than us is is part of that process and I like what uh, what it says in yeah. Hebrews uh, as we talk about entering into the expanse, God putting us into the expanse. And verse uh, 3 of Hebrews 4 says, For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said. And so Jesus is our Sabbath rest in a sense that he, the expanse is kind of Christological in a sense because that is the place in which we are put mm-hmm. before the foundation of the world, as, yes. Jesus, as, as Ephesians says, that before the foundation of the world, God predestined us in Christ. And so we are placed in Christ as the stars are placed in the expanse and as the children of Israel are placed between the waters and the Red Sea, as you said earlier, it is an act of grace and of giving that God graciously places us into the expanse, into his rest. And as Christians, you know, mm-hmm. we light up and we we have this task, it is only by grace that we can accomplish it, of proclaiming the objectivity, the ontological objectivity of beauty as it is in God found in Christ. I think you said that well. 
Well, I want to give you the opportunity to share with people. Do you do you have some of your own music or how people can get in touch with you or find out more about what you're doing uh, or some good resources, uh, books or websites or things that you like where uh, you're encouraged and stimulated by this idea of beauty and music and, and theology. Where where can people go? Mm, these are great questions. I um I do actually have a website that's probably the most helpful to recommend because I am it, I'm updating it actually with some of these things that you're mentioning so it will function more like a hub. <laughs> uh, but all of that to say the um, the website where I can be reached and where any sort of projects and publications are, um, and also some questions about what is musicology and, and things like that, um, is cjgeorge.com. There are many Christina Georges out there, so cjgeorge.com. And um, and that'll definitely be, like I said, it's down temporarily for some updating, but that'll be up in the next day or two. And um, as far as resources, I mean, there's just a whole host of, of things. Um, I think uh, in some ways my thoughts are sort of um, scattered. We're speaking of all these sort of individual texts, but um, people like, you know, Jeremy Bagby have done such wonderful work in terms of, of talking about um, music and its theological task. Um, and it, he's certainly not alone, but he's a name that comes to mind. That's a great, uh, he, so many books to pick up and all of them are good. <laughs> uh, so many books to pick up for, um, uh, a, an ordinary person like me to kind of, you know, begin reading about. And, um, yeah, but like I said, the website will function as sort of a hub. So as I fi- as I continually find resources that I enjoy, I'm hoping to curate a space there where it becomes helpful also to others looking. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. Now, are you uh, composing your own um, um, music? Uh, I'm actually. My husband is the composer. I okay. I thank goodness do not compose. So I'm purely I, I write articles and um, and teach at Xavier University, and um, so I get to talk about the music a lot more. And then I perform things uh, that my husband writes, but he does the actual okay. composing, <laughs> which okay. is great. Okay. So all that to say, we do have a couple of things that he has um, written some really beautiful sacred music. Actually, there's an orchestral piece in the song cycle based on a setting of Traherne poems that's on um, a SoundCloud page that we have that there is access to that on the website as well. So there are some kind of neat intersections of things there. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. We'll provide some links um, in the in our uh, description notes for the podcast for our listeners so you can check out more about that i'm familiar with jeremy begbie's work uh not as much as i'd like to be um but that that is i agree that would be an excellent place to start about theology and music and uh, uh what what music can do to help us uh, um, uh enrich our faith and uh, and uh, in, deepen our theological appreciation for creation which is what i think we have somewhat as the church um we we've sort of lost the 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 aesthetic aspects of creation to to a more materialistic kind of a a a science where it has uh reduced everything this this materialistic reductionism has uh has um sort of challenged us to uh i think as the church to recover uh, a deeper theology of beauty um and see, people say, well, I just sing in church on Sunday. It doesn't really have anything to do with the stars. And it certainly doesn't have anything to do with my job. Uh, there, there's no, there's no <laughs> right. ability to see uh, interrelated disciplines and how they fit together. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time with us today, Christy. Thank you so much for uh, 
for joining us today. Appreciate that. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me and um, for sharing your thoughts as well. I know I will continue to think on all these things. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, have a Merry Christmas and uh, we will chat again soon. You as well. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Isaiah 40, 26 exhorts us to lift up our eyes on high and consider who made the stars. The creator of the innumerable celestial host is the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah tells us that the Lord numbers all the stars and calls each one by name. If the Lord of the universe knows the name and the number of the stars, be encouraged. He too knows where you are. This is Good Heavens, a podcast about the human side of the universe and how a deeper appreciation for the heavens can encourage and strengthen your faith in Christ. Be sure to check out the story of the cosmos, how the heavens declare the glory of God, with chapters written by both Wayne and Dan. It is a comprehensive down-to-earth Christian defense of the cosmos, featuring essays on how the heavens have influenced science, art, philosophy, history, and theology. The Story of the Cosmos is a wonderful addition to any bookshelf or coffee table. Filled with stunning images of the heavens, high-quality gloss paper, and in-depth essays, it can be a great gift for friends, family, and non-believers interested in the intersection of science, culture, and faith. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on this podcast or any of the other apologetic resources from Watchman Fellowship, visit watchman.org today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Good Heavens. I'm Dave Mitchell.